Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. I hope you're doing as well as possible and staying safely away from other people. Um, And as you research colleges, remember that most of it can be done online. I know it's not ideal, but really, you'd be surprised at how much can be done online. All right, so on to the show today. For our second segment, Lori Peltier, college coach, college finance consultant, will be discussing why colleges are not communicating with you about your student. In other words, FERPA. If you don't know what that stands for, don't worry, Lori will explain. And for our third segment, I'll be asking Joy Biscornet, college coach educator and veteran of even more admission offices than I am, Lafayette College, Boston College, University of Illinois, or Sinus. Um, however, today we'll be talking to her about her personal college experience, which was at Lafayette, um, and what it was like studying engineering at a liberal arts college and why she chose that over a large university or a tech school. Um, but first, I will be welcoming Tova Tolman, who's right here on the screen, um, college coach veteran, formerly of Barnard College, Montclair University in New Jersey, and Fordham University in New York. She and I will be discussing how to make the most out of your common application activity list. Welcome, Tova. Thanks, Sally. Fun to be here, as always. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is one of those very practical topics that kind of seems like it would be easy, but then I talk to families and you know, it's not like they do things like ninth grade is at the top and, you know, um, things that when I asked them, was this your most important activity? They're like, no, it's that one I put down in number 10, you know, that kind of thing. So, Why so is that listed as number one then? Yeah, exactly. You know, so, um, well, let's, but let's begin at the beginning. What kinds of things actually belong on the list? Let's start there. Everything. This is really, I think, one of the things that I see students missing. Easy opportunities here. I'll see, I'll chat with a student, they list maybe two sports and that's it. And I'm like, that's wonderful. Sports are very time consuming. It's quite possible that takes up all of your time. But it's, you also listed you only spend about three hours a week in this sport, maybe four in that sport. How do you account for the rest of your time? What do you, would you mm-hmm. just kind of like hang out and read the rest of your day? Oh no, I'm also really involved in my local church, and actually, it's my responsibility to pick up my third grade little sister after school every day, take her to her soccer practice, help her with her homework, um, and get dinner started before my parents get home. That belongs on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, colleges are just trying to understand how you spend your time. So if if it's some sort of structured anything that's happening outside of school. It matters too. It doesn't just have to be a school-sanctioned activity. Any sort of community-based activity. Family responsibility is one of the drop-down options. That's what they mean. They probably Mm -hmm. don't mean something like my daily taking out the trash and making my bed responsibility. Like that's just kind of part of living and, you know, being a, a member of a household. But something above and beyond, like a real commitment, it belongs on the list. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recently had a discussion with a family where, um, unfortunately, the father had a, a stroke and he was rehabilitating, but the kids were helping him. He needed help and the mom had to work. And this was not a time to lose health insurance. So, you know, the kids were spending at least a couple hours every day um, to help him with his, you know, physical therapy and whatnot. I was said, absolutely, the colleges want to know about that. That is a major responsibility. And that is as important as Glee Club or whatever else you might want to be mentioning. So I just always like to emphasize that. That being said, I don't know how you feel about like a student who kind of like strums guitar from time to time in his room by himself and doesn't play in a band or anything. I mean, would you would you advise a student to list that? In all honesty with that, I usually say only if you've really got nothing else. It depends on how engaged or committed the student is to the hobby. Mm-hmm. So if you're like you said exactly that, oh yeah, I have a guitar. I sometimes strum it. No, probably not. But mm-hmm. if your hobby is a legit hobby where, where you take that guitar and three times a week you have band practice with your friends and it's you, mm-hmm. you don't think it counts because it's just you and three buddies in a band, but you actually are kind of on your own through computers, putting together your, your, your album. I'm using air quotes. I'm being so condescending to these poor kids. <laughs> they're putting together an album. They're practicing. They're rehearsing. They're writing their songs. That counts. That's a legitimate hobby. Maybe you have a student who loves fishing and they started making their own fishing lures. Maybe... The family travels a lot. Travel doesn't necessarily count, but the student submits their photography to a travel blog and writes and is a regular contributor to a travel blog. You know, that counts. If it's a well-formed hobby with a legit commitment that is showing sort of deep invested time and uh, impact or you're creating, you're doing with some sort of regularity, I'd say that that can go on there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of key things that I say to students is, is this being shared with other people? Like, let's say you're a creative writer, um, you know, you'd probably put that down regardless, but it's going to be even better if you're sharing this with other people, if you're part of the literary magazine, or even if you're part of an online group, something like that, right? And then, yeah, with the guitar, like a garage band counts too. It doesn't have to be orchestra. It right. doesn't have to be something super formal. Um, so Okay, it sounds like we're in agreement on this. But in general, like part of the reason I make those distinctions is because sometimes students run out of room and then they're like, well, what do I list? So you you are going to have to make kind of some evaluations there. But, you know, if you have room to just put down that you play the guitar at the bottom, that's okay. I mean, that's what I would say, as long as it's not taking space away. From something, something that's more meaty, that something has greater impact. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, just kind of be aware of the noise. Mm. You know what I mean? Like extra noise. You don't. You want not be- like the level of your amp, but you know, right. <laughs> exactly. But just yeah, like know that sometimes things that are less important can sort of detract from the things that are very, very important. So, mm-hmm. um, and so I mentioned the order briefly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, let's talk about that some more, because I think that is really challenging for students sure. uh, and parents. Yeah. I think what happens is they start to get in the guessing game of exactly what you're talking about. You're saying, you know, certain things are really important and really valuable. Don't replace it with noise. And then students sometimes try and play the guessing game of like, oh, colleges really care about X. I'm going to put that at the top of the list. Please put at the top of the list what's most important to you, what takes up your most amount of time for the most amount of years. 
that one time volunteer thing you did for an hour in ninth grade does not belong at the top of your list. And Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes students think like, oh, it's really cool that I, that I worked in a lab. Colleges love to see research. Well, you did it once in 10th grade for a week. Mm -hmm. Does that belong at your top of your list? That thing that you're committed to that you do four days a week for like 40 weeks of the year at like, you know, 20 hours a week that belongs at the top of your list. So Mm -hmm. order it based on what's most important to you. What are you proudest of? What takes up most of your time? Hopefully those are the three, those three things are the same thing. Hopefully the thing that takes up most Mm -hmm. of your time is the thing that you're proudest of and the thing that's most important to you. And then it's easy. That goes at the top of your list. And then descending based on importance, on frequency, on level, as you're saying, of impact. How many other people is it touching? What is the commitment? How much time is it taking up? How many years have you been doing it? Uh, you might find you have seven things and that's that's full and you've nothing else to add and that's great. You might find you have 15 things and you're trying to decide how to prioritize. The bottom of the list is the stuff that you haven't done since ninth or 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I always try and tell students too to think think about where you've had the biggest impact. That's one of the ways to, to prioritize. Like I run into families that, that think that an internship is a requirement. And so, yeah, they think that ninth grade internship, it was an internship, so it must be more important. And then I ask, well, what did your student do? I mean, let's face it, most ninth graders aren't up to doing that much other than photocopying. And I mean, there are exceptions, but you know, whereas this thing in 11th grade that was just volunteering is where they actually like, you know, they taught groups of, they developed curriculum and taught um, groups of middle school students, which frankly, I think is pretty challenging. Teaching middle school students is really hard. So, you know, that's actually probably the thing that goes at the top. So also like, don't just think about the title. Think about, yeah, like what was impactful um, as well? What was actually harder to do? What did you accomplish during that? And if it was mostly making coffee and making copies, then you know, probably not that you can't list it, but that's going to be less important than a place where you were more active. Right. So, yeah. All right. And then what about, um, how do students describe things? I see pretty often students writing, I did this, I did that. And I'm like, you don't need to use full sentences. No. You have so few characters. Don't waste them on proper grammar. Even honestly, I'm okay with abbreviations. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with you not spelling out numbers under 10. I, (laughs) um, so yeah, I would also not waste space on obvious things. You're on the soccer team. I assume you go to practice and compete in games. Mm. You don't need to tell me that. I want to hear how you impact the team. You're the one they can count on for smiles. You mentor the the young players. You lead drills. You do the scheduling for the coach. You know, what does it mean to be the captain mm-hmm. of the team? And I think that you can get a lot of a lot packed in to not a huge amount of space if you're pithy, concise, and get creative. You can even show some personality there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But remember, but for me, I always want to think first and foremost, get that information across. Yeah. Um, But yeah, abbreviations, acronyms, whatever it is, as long as it's going to be, you know, as long as it's pretty obvious what it is, Mm -hmm. I was always completely fine with that. Um, But if it's not a well-known acronym, don't use it. Like mm -hmm. everyone, every admission officer across the country knows what 
NHS is. We know what DECA is. We know what MUN is. And maybe some of our listeners are saying, I I don't know what those things are. And that's okay. (laughs) But if it's like this obscure acronym that only your high school uses, you Mm -hmm. might want to explain because we Mm -hmm. might not know. And that would would be hard. Mm -hmm. And if you're not sure if it's like a well-known thing or not, you can ask your guidance counselor. They can tell you if it's a national well-known organization that everybody knows. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing. Is it national? If it's national, like they've heard about it. They know what it is. But if it's just a high school specific thing, you're going to have to spell it out. <laughs> that's Please. just the way it works. If you want us to know what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless, you know, we could just say, oh, I guess they're doing something and we don't know what it is. <laughs> cool. All right. Anything else they can do to uh, maximize the descriptions? Sure. You can actually even get creative with your title. So on um, on the different platforms, on Common App and Coalition App, you have a drop down for what's the categorization. So let's say you're in the band, uh, you categorize it. It's like music, or I think that's what it is, music instrumental or something like that. And let's say you play the violin, your title could just say orchestra, mm-hmm. or you could say I'm a, a in your title violinist and high school orchestra and chamber ensemble. Mm-hmm. Now you have you don't have to waste any of that 150 characters on the description of saying that you're a violinist in the chamber orchestra. That's already in the title. Now you have the rest of the space to explain what is entailed, uh, what is your level of impact to the orchestra, and so on. And I think sometimes you don't have a lot of impact. You know, I, I've had this conversation with students too. Of well, at the at the I, where I volunteer at the hospital, I just kind of do what I'm told. I I've only been there for a year. I don't really have so it's something impressive to share. Well, and and this is maybe like 201, 301 level of what I'm about to suggest. But you don't have to just say hospital volunteer and then leave it blank. I I will never forget this example. And again, this is a little extreme, but I thought was showed a lot of personality. The student said, it's never a dull moment at Mass General from developing crafts with students to delivering newspapers. I love serving as a teen volunteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that fits in 150 characters. Now I'm learning a little bit about the joy the student brings, what they get out of it, that they, it's something that they particularly have fun with. And I learn a little bit more about the student in, in only one sentence, mm-hmm. uh, even if they haven't done a whole lot with that particular activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a full sentence, if you have room for it, is okay. But I think we we really agree. Don't do the I did this. I no. do that. Like, yes. Please don't. No either, full sentences are needed. Yeah. Either kind only of only if you really have nothing else to say. Then right. Sure. Exactly. Well, even then, like I was kind of like, mm, I don't have a lot of time to read this application. Could you make it quick? Like think about it, sort of the way a resume is formatted, yeah. where you want bullets someone- are great. I mean, I think it is really a good idea to think about who your audience is. Um, these are people who, I don't know how much time you had on your applications. I had more at some schools, but boy, in Chicago, I was reading 40 to 50 applications a day. Some people read more. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you just want to be super efficient, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any like Anything else? I think you just really think hard about how you spend your time don't leave off something major. I can't tell you how frustrating it was to read in a recommendation letter from the guidance counselor or teacher and learn that the student had a 20 hour a week part-time job at the corner coffee house. And they didn't mention that because they didn't think it counted because it wasn't at school. Think about how you spend your time. Don't leave off things that are crucial and important to you and assume and recognize everything counts. You just want to know how you spend your time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
All right, great. Thank you so much, Tova. My pleasure, Sally. Good to see you. All right, so we will be back in just a few minutes uh, with Lori Peltier, um, who will be telling us about FERPA. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now... Back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And as I mentioned before our break, Lori Peltier will be joining us for this segment to talk about FERPA. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. All right, so I think we need to start with what FERPA is. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you wanted to do a different introduction first, but not everybody knows what that acronym stands for. Exactly. So uh, FERPA stands for the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. It's, it's a government rule that a student at the age of 18 or entering college, so even if your child is 17 but going off to college, um, has to fill out this FERPA form. It's a release form giving access to the parent of their academic and financial records. Without this form being signed, the parent cannot see the student's uh, financial aid, their student loan information, their student account information for how much the tuition is and what they owe on their bill, or any of their academic grades. It also allows access to make amendments to the information if you ever wanted to contest a grade or contest information. Um, So the FERPA form is really important for parents but the student needs to release it to the parent. So uh, I was recently talking to a friend of mine whose son is going off to a large public university in the fall, and she knew that the FERPA form had to be filled out because it was on his to-do list, the checklist that the school gave him, um, and they did fill it all out, but the parent still wasn't getting emails from the school. The FERPA form does not change how the school communicates with the student, They will still be communicating with the student as the primary customer, 
Um, crazy as it is, the bill goes to the student. Obviously, the grades go to the student. The financial aid offer goes to the student. So the parent still doesn't see everything, but they have access to call and request information or get into the system and see information online. But the communication is still going to the student. Okay. All right. And now what, you know, now that families have made a decision on a school, what are some, I mean, you mentioned some types of communication, but what are some of the other types that they should be expecting? What should they be Mm -hmm. looking out for? Yeah, I I think of this time period as like the ninth inning or, you know, the end of the marathon, if you will, Um, because you know, people think, oh, I finally got through, I made a decision, I paid a deposit, we're, we're ready to go. But there's a lot of little things that still need to be tied up um, and need to happen for a smooth transition off to college. So students, when they pay a deposit, will receive access typically to an online portal just for new students. And on there will be a checklist with things like emergency contact information, um, release forms for your picture or your information. You know, if the newspaper wants to run a picture of you playing soccer at your college, you need to release all that information. Um, You know, roommate selection, Um, which orientation do you want to go to? So there's a lot of little things that happen in June, July, and August in order to get the student all signed up and ready to go. I often tell families, remember way back when, when you sent your kid off to kindergarten and all that paperwork you had to fill out to get them into public school or or whatever Mm -hmm. school they went to, you're doing it all over again. But now it's the student is being asked for the information, but most students will need mom and dad's help to fill it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is the FERPA like a one-time thing to authorize or is that something that families need to do every year? The student will be asked every year if there are any changes. Um, if the student changes their mind and wants to add someone or remove someone from their FERPA, they can do that at any time. But every year the student will be asked, you know, do you want to keep it the same? And obviously if the student changes schools, they would have to do it again at their new school. One thing I remind families to think about is, you know, if you're in a divorced or separated situation, you might have mom and dad living at different places. You definitely want to think about who's going to have access to your information and add them or not add them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I remember that all being very stressful with divorced parents, (laughs) which I had. So although I just ended up being my mom, she just was (laughs) the one who made sure everything happened. I don't know what would have happened without her, honestly. Right. All right. So do colleges do a good job communicating this information to families in general? You know, I think it depends on the school, but I do think they are getting better at it. You know, and now that everything is online, um, when my first child went off to college, it was 2010. And I found it a, a little bit like unnerving. I didn't think it was organized. But I think now that everything is online and people are so used to doing all these forms online, um, as I mentioned, they will have access to this portal with a checklist. If things are missing, the student will receive an email, typically at their school-issued email account, which is another thing. You know, the student might have two or three different email accounts. One of them is their new email with the college that they've deposited at. So that's where the information is going to be sent. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do think that they do a good job. Um, I think with COVID-19 and all the different correspondence or communication the colleges are trying to get out to the students, some things might get lost because there's just so much communication going on and nothing's really definite. So you don't know what to pay attention to. Um, But yeah, I think a a family should probably plan on sitting down with their student and going through that online checklist in the student portal together. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just, it, this brings up a memory of a friend of mine back in college. This was pre-email when the box, the mail, our mailboxes <laughs> were everything. And he missed a financial aid deadline and finally mm-hmm. like realized that he had missed a deadline, checked his box after like a month. And he walks mm-hmm. into the financial aid office and apparently the Deaf director of financial aid said, you don't check your box, do you? And he's <laughs> like, if you're on financial aid, you have to check your box. <laughs> and um, I mean, really, he needed to be checking it for everything. But um, um, he, and he said he was like, yes, sir. You know, um, he actually quite liked the director of financial aid. But email is the new box, mm-hmm. kids. And I mentioned yeah. that because students, they're on text, they're on Snapchat, they're on whatever I sometimes find some of them don't check their email. You have to check your email. Yes. It's the new box is what I would say. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, all right. So turning 18 and heading off to college is already a pretty big milestone. So, you know, what else is changing at this time? Well, those parents that are listening who already have an 18-year-old would know this, um, but at 18, the student becomes or the child becomes an adult in the eye of the law. So medical records, another big one. So um, for those who have already turned 18, you may have had to fill out healthcare proxy forms with your pediatrician. But um, if you haven't and your child's headed off to college, you need to sign yourself. Typically, the parent is going to be the healthcare proxy. No one wants to think about something bad happening. But if the student injures themselves or is in an accident of some kind, mom and dad won't have any um, say in their medical care if they have not been designated as the healthcare proxy. And and Mm -hmm. it's stricter in some states than others. So something to think about, especially depending on how far away from home the child is going and things like that. Um, Some people even recommend getting a a lawyer involved and getting some legal documents so that God forbid, if something does happen, the parents can make decisions for the student if they're incapable to make them themselves. Right, right. Yeah, the laws are pretty strict as far as what can mm-hmm. be disclosed. So, Correct. I mean, I've heard of cases where when the, the forms weren't signed, the kid was very ill in the hospital and people weren't allowed to tell the parents, I think. So, yeah. you know, if the roommate didn't know the parent's number and didn't think yeah. to call, the school was <laughs> legally not allowed to do so. So, right. yeah, it can be very tough. So, all right. Anything else that parents should lo- be looking out for at this critical time? Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of people think about going off to college. Well, I have to teach my child how to do their own laundry or, you know, hopefully they have good study habits. But there's a lot of other things that um, might not think about, such as financially, will the student need a budget? And have you talked about budgeting their money and how will their earnings last all through the fall semester? Uh, What if they need to eat off campus or buy their books? How are they going to do that? Do they need a credit card? Do they need an ATM card on campus? What if they're going to work? Who helps them fill out those work forms? The way that you fill out the forms for employment can change how you're taxed on your earnings. So it can be a surprise at the end of the year. Oh, I didn't have any taxes taken out of my earnings and now I might owe some taxes. And I think the other big one is insurance. Um, health insurance for the student. Um, The school will bill you for health insurance if you don't prove that you have the student covered under your own health insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is one thing that gets missed by some families. So, you know, having that discussion, do you need dorm insurance or apartment insurance for your belongings in your dorm? And then tuition insurance is a new one, Um, especially with COVID-19. A lot of families are thinking, well, what if 
my child gets sick with COVID or the school decides to send them home early and we want to drop out or not continue the semester, what kind of a refund policy does the school have? And would tuition insurance be helpful to get my money back if I've paid for the whole semester? Hmm. That's another big topic lately. Yeah, yeah. All right. So not all students live on campus and with COVID-19, many will still be living at home. Are there any different suggestions in that situation? I think, um, you know, for and you may have been seeing this with your students that you work with, but these seniors, you know, maybe from March on have been taking online classes. And in the fall, they're going to be taking online classes. But I think you have to recognize or acknowledge the milestone that has passed. They're not in high school anymore. They Mm -hmm. are now a college student. So as a family, how do you accommodate that? You know, I was going to say, you know, extending a curfew or, you know, giving them more freedom and rights as a student, you know, as a child in your household. So you just want to make sure that you're acknowledging that it's different and it's not high school anymore, that this is, this is college, this is real. Um, and then you might have to have expenses for uh, higher internet speed, you know, or a designated workspace for the student and a new laptop, um, things like that. So even though you're not gonna have expenses for the dorm room or the meal plan, but you might have other expenses from the student being at home, maybe car insurance and, and gas mileage and car repairs if they're gonna commute to campus. Or, or even just being home instead of being away. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so things could be changing. And then they might shift again for January <laughs> it's because right. they might go back to campus. So Yeah, exactly. And I, I think um, given that there might only be a month between fall and spring semesters and uh, the college, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but the colleges will be shifting maybe from online to on campus. So then in December, you all of a sudden have to get ready to move into campus in January. Mm-hmm. So, so what to, what students typically have the whole summer to prepare for, they're now just going to have the month of December. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and just so everybody listening to this knows, Lori is a mom. She has sent kids <laughs> to college, so she knows what she's talking about from, from both perspectives. So, yes. yeah. all right. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Sally. It was great to be here. All right, so we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, I'll be welcoming Joy Biscornet to tell us her college story. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Joy. I'm very excited to have you here. Um, honestly, I hadn't even heard of engineering at a small liberal arts college until about five years into college admissions, honestly. So it was so interesting when I talked to someone, I think it was from Lehigh, and I was like, what? How do you have engineering in a school that is not a massive university? I just never heard of it. So I'd love to hear sort of what your path was to choosing. Um, I believe you went to Lafayette. So like, what was your path to choosing a you know, engineering in a liberal arts setting. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about this with you, Sally, because a lot of people don't know that you can g- get a four-year degree in engineering um, at a liberal arts institution. So um, I found my way to Lafayette because I knew that I wanted to study engineering. Um, I really liked math and science and liked to know how things worked. And I really liked working with my hands and building things. Um, But in high school, I also really enjoyed my history classes and my foreign language classes. I studied uh, French and Russian in in high school. And when I was thinking about fit, the driving factors for me, for my college experience, I didn't want to have to give history and language up just to study a more, a really technical subject area. And I also knew that I wanted to be in a smaller environment. I knew that I thrived when I was in an environment when I could ask questions and get to know my teachers. Um, My sister went to a larger university. She's four years older than I am. So I had the benefit of going on college tours with her during her search process. And she went to a large university. It was the right fit for her. But seeing the lecture halls, I knew that wasn't right for me, that I would get lost. So I looked at schools like Lafayette and Manhattan in Riverdale, um, in the Bronx, in New York. I looked at Lehigh. I looked at Bucknell. Uh, But interestingly enough, I also looked, oh, I looked at Union too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also looked at Skidmore, um, which is not engineering at all, uh, just because I wanted to have that sense of what if I change my mind and I do want to be at a traditional liberal arts college without the engineering piece. But Mm -hmm. Lafayette really turned out to be the right fit for me because at the time I had the best of both worlds. Um, I knew that I could study and get an engineering degree in four years and not have to switch schools if I were doing a 3-2 engineering program, um, which I considered. It just wasn't the right fit for me. I I knew that I wanted to be able to jump right in and get a taste of what I would be studying from freshman year instead of focusing on math and physics and then going somewhere else for my hardcore engineering classes and finding out, oh, this isn't what I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do want to be clear that obviously... I think engineering schools typically require an English course and a history course, but you're not in it. You're not in those courses with history and English majors. And I think that's probably 
the biggest difference? I mean, what was your observation once you were there? Like, obviously you found the right school for you, but you know, what were some of the observations that you found as a student there? Things that you kind of were the same as you expected and then maybe was there anything different or maybe even better? Right. Um, so at the time, um, I, I, my degree is in civil engineering. So I have a bachelor of science in, in civil engineering. And once I got into my classes in my major, I was, I was with the same 15 students in every single class because we were the 15 civil engineering majors and I was one of three women. So mm-hmm. I got to know the other two women really well. Um, but it was interesting to go from that to walk across the quad to the buildings where my history courses were and where my language courses were um, and be with different students all the time and not see anyone from my engineering classes, which was really refreshing to me because so many times I kind of felt sequestered in the engineering building, working in my lab, um, doing problem sets that I felt like I didn't see the, the rest of the college. But when I went to take my classes in the social sciences and the humanities, I felt like I was part of the larger college community. And I was talking about things that I wouldn't necessarily talk about with my fellow engineering students. Um, and what I liked most about it, Sally, was that I was, I was able to learn how to listen to other people's perspectives and consider their perspectives alongside my own. In my engineering classes, I either had the right answer or the wrong answer. There's not much debate when trying to figure out how to make a a bridge stand up. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I would take classes um, about uh, the American Revolution or the Vietnam War and the American experience, which is one of the classes that I took, it was great to be able to actually debate with my peers and and learn how to do that in a thoughtful way um, and listen and think and and develop my arguments. Mm -hmm. So that's when I would talk to my friends who who went to larger universities to study engineering or maybe went to technical schools they didn't have that. Um, And some of them thought, oh, that seems kind of cool. And others of them said, you know what, I'm so glad that I don't have to do that. They had to take their English class or maybe a a math class, which was satisfied as an engineer anyway, but they didn't have distribution requirements that I did to ensure that I got that liberal arts foundation as an engineer. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I mean, I will acknowledge that I probably should have had more math or any math once I got to college. Like I really should have taken a stats class. But um, and so acknowledging that, I feel like I can also say that even if an engineering student or a math student or whatever doesn't want to deal with an English or history class and the kind of ambiguity that is sort of inherent to those subjects, that's a good thing to be exposed to because it is a different way of thinking about the world. I wonder if that impacted like the other students that you were at Lafayette with too, even in the engineering department, were more of them kind of like you where they had those broader interests? Some were, there were some, and I, I want to say that it may have depended on the discipline within, within engineering. Um, so my 
my friends and my peers that were electrical engineers. They seemed to be hardcore engineers and took their distribution requirements where they had to, but may have not pursued a minor in another subject like I did. Um, and then there were, you know, some of my, my peers that were chemical engineers were really interested in the sciences. So they might be studying, um, other, like taking more chemistry or physics than, than they even needed to, to satisfy their degree because it was something that was a real interest to them. Um, and I think that as my, my peers started to see me show up in um, non-engineering classes, I mean, at the time, Lafayette had 2,000 students. So you, you, there were lots of familiar faces on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first couple of times I walked into a history class, no one knew who I was. And they were kind of like, uh, are you in the right place? Aren't yeah. you an engineer? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not lost. I'm doing yeah. this of my own free will. <laughs> no, yeah. um, but afterwards, I think they started to appreciate my willingness to put myself in what might be perceived of outside of my comfort zone mm-hmm. to not always end a conversation with one right answer that I was really open to the discussion and the debate and, and learning from others. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I mean, this is, this might be getting ahead of us. Um, but I was wondering if you could address, I mean, your career has been really interesting to me too, right? Cause like now you do what I do. I was a history major, by the way. Um, like, how did it impact your career or your work as an engineer? I assume that you worked as an engineer for a little while. Okay. I did. Um, yeah. So did that breadth, was that helpful to you? Like, kind of how did all this impact your trajectory after college? I, yeah, I think it it actually helped me a lot because um, I had to take English classes. I took more than than one semester of English, and I found that to be really helpful because I developed my writing, which going into college, I was not comfortable with. Um, and I dreaded my English classes, but I really came to appreciate them um, later on in, in my college career when I was writing research papers for classes that I had a, a, as an engineer. Um, so that really helped me. And then when I, when I left and, and, college and started my career, my first career was in construction. So I was working for a a small construction company. And what I found to be most valuable was I could take what the the other engineers or the engineers on the project were saying what needed to be done. And then I could sort of translate it into um, more non-engineering speak, if you will, to the family who was buying the home or to a contractor. So I found like I I had a foot in each world. I could understand what the engineers were saying about the, the project and how it was going on or any design modifications that needed to be made. And then I could also explain it to people who didn't have such a technical background. Um, mm-hmm. And where it really paid off, I think, was when I decided that I didn't want to stay in the engineering profession anymore, and I wanted to get into college admissions and college counseling. Having a liberal arts education, I was very, it was easy for me to revamp my resume. And when I would interview, 
be able to talk about my experience because I had learned to think critically and also communicate uh, well from my from my liberal arts education. It, it taught me how to think and communicate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's kind of back up then. If you're trying to advise a student who's trying to decide between a school like that has a Lafayette like model versus maybe. Um, you know, a technical school or a large university, which ones, I mean, as you said, it's all about fit, right? For some students, really, they want the large school. Um, for some students, really, they want the tech school. I mean, I think that we, you do still need to take your writing classes seriously, you know, but, but, <laughs> but in general, like, who is going to be better off at a school like a Lafayette or a Union or a Lehigh? I, I think the type of student who knows that they have interests beyond math and science or applied math and science. If there's, if you, you know, you really like physics, um, but you also have an interest in outside of STEM um, and you, you don't want to have to really give that up, uh, then I think engineering within a liberal arts environment is a great fit or that that's an, an ideal fit for a candidate or a student like that um, because they know that it's, not going to be all math, science, applied science, um, day in and day out, that they will have the opportunity and also the requirement and expectation to take classes outside of the major and not just an English class here or a math class here. I would say a third of my classes were devoted to subjects outside of my major. Um, mm-hmm. because I realized somewhere in my sophomore year, I'm like, oh, if I took just a few more history classes, I could have a minor in American history. And that really excited me. I think I want to do this. I, mm-hmm. I, it offered me more options than just being focused on engineering. Mm-hmm. And so I've talked to some families that think that if it's at a liberal arts college, it can't be as good. And I don't like, I'm quite confident that they're wrong about that, but I don't sort of have the experience to be able to say like, you are wrong. So did this impact in any way your ability? I mean, did any of your employers say, well, if there's good English classes, there can't be good engineering or history or whatever. So like, like talk a little bit about that. Sure. Certainly not. I mean, in, during my orientation, Sally, um, the the entire engineering class, if you will, sat down um, for a message from um, the director of the the engineering department, and he had said to us, "Look to your left, look to your right, look behind you. One of the four of you is not going to be here by the time you graduate. Like one of you, at least one of you, is going to say, this is not for me.'" So we were told right from the very beginning, like, this is not going to be an easy process. And I actually can tell you, there were um, companies that came on to campus to recruit students coming out of the engineering programs at Lafayette, because they knew that not only did we have the the technical know-how and all the engineering theory, but we could also talk and communicate and communicate right with, with people outside of the engineering field. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I had friends that um, went on to work at Merck and went on to work at um, Boeing, went on to work at uh, big construction companies. Um, I think it's interesting that I can't pull one. It's on the tip of my tongue <laughs> and I, I can't think of it right now. Um, but I think all of my friends, all of my my engineering friends, when we graduated, we all had jobs before we graduated. I was recruited by um, to the construction company that I worked for by a Lafayette alum. He mm-hmm. came and he knew that he wanted... Um, Lafayette graduates. So I was hired along with one of uh, a fellow civil engineering major, and he now um, lives in Texas and he works for ExxonMobil. Um, his wife does too, who was one of the three <laughs> female engineers. So um, we were not at a loss for employment opportunities, um, nor were we, we weren't taken any less seriously uh, because we were able to do such great things being at a small institution. I had friends who did research all four years and published um, co-authored papers with their professors presented at research symposiums. So it, it wasn't like engineering was just an aside that that was what we did. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Joy, we've run out of time, but thank you so much. That was great. Thanks, Sally. I'm happy to have the chat with you. Absolutely. All right. So thanks again also to Lori Peltier and Tova Tolman for joining me today. Um, And just to give you a heads up on our July 23rd show next week, we'll be interviewing a former medical school admission officer from Columbia and Stanford, who also happens to work for College Coach now, about activities to pursue in college if you are pre-med. And then we will be answering listener questions. So that should be a great show. And if you want more information from us about how to handle the admission process in the time of COVID-19, please visit our blog at blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog at getintocollege.com. You'll be able to search for particular blogs and getting in show summaries there. The full archive is available to you. um, So any questions that you might have really, you should be able to find there. And last, don't forget, We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. 
Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more.